You are listening to an episode of Ask the Pastor. My name is Reverend Greg Capel, and I am the pastor of Trinity Bible Church in Glassboro, New Jersey. In this episode, we're going to answer the question, how do Christians make moral choices? We are regularly faced with hundreds of moral choices. Often, we don't even think about the choices we have made. Perhaps we made the choice based on tradition, culture, or even religious preferences. But did we ever stop to wonder if the decision was actually moral from God's point of view? As well, there are a growing list of moral issues that we are facing today that we've never faced before. Issues involving sexuality, genetics, medicine, reproduction, life and death, to name a few. How do we as believers make decisions not based on our gut reactions or our perceived ideas of what we think is right and wrong based on tradition, culture, and religion. That's why we need to answer the question, how do Christians make moral choices? Before we answer the question, we need to establish that there are several moral positions to choose from. Moral relativism, cultural relativism, situation ethics, behaviorism, or moral absolutism. Let me define those. Moral relativism is a morality not based on any absolute standards. It teaches that truth is based on variables such as situations or feelings. Those who would adhere to moral relativism push the issue of tolerance. The moral relativist claims that by enforcing an absolute moral code on someone is intolerant and therefore wrong. To be clear, this position is untenable for three reasons. First, Evil should never be tolerated. If there are no moral standards, the result will be anarchy. Second, the argument behind moral relativism is self-defeating. The fact that the moral relativist does not tolerate the intolerance of the moral absolutist undermines their position. Refusing to be tolerant to the intolerant sets them in a position of establishing an absolute. And third, the moral relativist cannot explain why someone should be tolerant. Cultural relativism is a morality based on whatever a particular cultural group approves as right or wrong. Thus, culture becomes the dominant determiner of what is moral or immoral. Such a position is fatally flawed. First, there are at any given time many competing cultural groups. Second, with so many competing cultural groups, each determining their own morality, it is impossible to condemn one group over another. For example, according to cultural relativism, the extermination of the Jews under Hitler would be acceptable because the Nazis made decisions within the context of their cultural worldview. Situation ethics is a morality based on the context of a situation instead of an absolute moral standard. Where moral relativism holds to no right or wrong, Situation ethics uses the needs of a given situation to determine what is right or wrong. Adherents of this view claim that all laws and rules and principles and ideals and norms are only contingent, only valid, if they happen to serve love. In other words, as long as love is the goal, the end justifies the mean. For example, if an individual is married and their spouse becomes invalid, then it would be loving for them to have an affair 
because their needs were unable to be met by their spouse. Now, situational ethics does not hold up in light of who God is. First, God is good and unchangeable. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good, His loving kindness is everlasting, and His faithfulness to all generations. Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Situation ethics teaches that a set of circumstances determines morality. However, since God is good, He determines what is moral or immoral, not circumstances. Second, God is love. 1 John 4, 8. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. This love is known as agape love. Agape love is defined as a self-sacrificing love, not a self-serving love. Situation ethics teaches that one does the most loving thing for oneself. Self-love is the antithesis of God. Behaviorism is a morality that is the result of one's genetic makeup, environmental circumstances, or conditioning. This ethical view believes that people are victims of forces outside of their control. Therefore, people are not responsible for their behaviors. Proponents of this view believe that human freedom and human dignity are outdated and should be discarded. Scripture directly opposes the ethical position of behaviorism. Romans 1-3 through 3 teaches that people are morally responsible for their behaviors and actions. Adam and Eve were created morally good. Genesis 1.27 God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Adam and Eve sinned despite genetic perfection. Adam and Eve were placed in a flawlessly designed garden. Genesis 2, 8 to 9. The Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve sinned, regardless of environmental perfection. Adam and Eve were given specific rewards and punishments for obedience and disobedience. Genesis 1, 28-30 God blessed them and said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit-yielding seed, it shall be food for you. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Nonetheless, Adam and Eve sinned, regardless of the perfect instrumental conditioning. Now, moral absolutism is a morality based on universal precepts and principles found in God's Word. These precepts and principles are absolute because God is the ultimate source of morality. Psalm 119.68 You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Matthew 19.17 He said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Matthew 19.17 The term good in both the Hebrew and Greek refers to moral excellence. God is moral excellence. Therefore, morality reflects his character. God established a code of morality or ethics for people to live by. Leviticus 11.44 and 1 Peter 1.16 Be holy as I am holy. 
God's ethical code, or moral code, is found in the moral absolutes of His law, specifically the Ten Commandments. God established a code of ethics for mankind to live by. Thus, God's law is an instruction manual on how to be holy or make moral life choices. Now, making moral decisions is sometimes difficult when we're confronted with an issue that is what we would call morally ambiguous. And there are several steps that we can take to make right moral choices, particularly with issues that may be ambiguous. But before examining those steps, the following question must be answered. What makes a person moral or immoral in doing an act? The question is not what is moral or immoral, but instead, what makes a person moral or immoral? Now, some may answer that the consequences make the person moral. Friends, consequences do not make us moral or immoral. How something turns out does not determine an individual's morality. Something could be moral, and the consequences turn out bad. And those who choose to identify morality by consequences are called consequentialists. If someone does something out of fear of punishment, then he or she did not do it because he or she is moral. If someone does something out of fear of what others think, then that person did it because he or she isn't moral or immoral. They may have made a moral decision, but because they allowed the consequence to determine the course of action, they were not acting morally. A non-consequentialist does not allow the consequences of a given decision to determine his or her morality. Instead, a non-consequentialist consults a set of moral absolutes to determine his or her decisions. And for us, that set of moral absolutes are found in God's Word, specifically His law. See, doing a morally good act doesn't make you or me morally upright. Look at the Pharisees, a perfect example of immoral per people performing moral acts. Outwardly, they conform to God's law, but inwardly they were plotting to lie, cheat, steal, and even murder. So the only way an individual can be considered moral is if that person freely performed a morally good act with the right motivation. See, the key to being a moral person is freedom of action. In other words, we cannot be considered morally responsible if we do not have freedom of action. God gave Adam and Eve the tree of knowledge of good and evil to demonstrate that they had freedom of action. By placing the tree before them, God gave them a choice. Regardless of the choice they made, the fact that they made a choice demonstrated that they were morally responsible creatures. Without the freedom of action, people would be neither moral or immoral. And if we were amoral creatures, then we would not be made in God's image. But because we are made in God's image, we have freedom of action and the ability to be moral or immoral. So a person cannot be held morally accountable unless they act freely. Now this rule expresses itself in two ways. First of all, no one can be held morally accountable 
for doing what he or she could not fail to do. And second, no one can be held morally accountable for failing to do what he or she could not do. I'll state that again. A person cannot be held morally accountable for doing what they could not fail to do, and a person cannot be held morally accountable for failing to do what they could not do. We'll explore that more in a moment. Now, the issue of morality comes down to three options. There is the morally obligatory, there is the morally permissible, and there is the morally supererogatory. Morally obligatory acts are those actions delineated by rules which declare what one must do or not do. For example, the law says do not steal or murder. Therefore, we are morally obligated not to steal or murder. Morally permissible acts are those actions which are neither encouraged or prohibited. In other words, there's no moral rule which outlaws the issue. Examples of morally permissible acts are watching a movie or going to the store. Now, that said, the particular movie you watch or the store you go to may not be permissible and perhaps falls under a moral obligation. Now, the morally supererogatory acts are those actions that go above and beyond the call of duty. These actions are only done for good or right causes. It's an act that a person does that they're not obligated to do, but is permissible for them to do, and usually involves sacrificing themselves for another person. Now, if someone's in a position to help another person in need, and by doing so, does not endanger his or her life, or does not remove his or her rights, then that person would be obligated to help. For example, if someone fell down the steps in front of you, you're morally obligated to help them. Helping them up or getting them an ice pack or calling an ambulance is not putting you out. It is not endangering your life. The morally obligatory action is, how can I get them help? Now, if someone's in a position to help another person in need, and in doing so, it endangers his or her life or removes his or her rights, then that person would not be obligated to help. For example, if you see a house on fire, you would be morally obligated to call 911, but you are not obligated morally to go into that house. If you choose to enter the house to see if anyone is trapped, you would be doing something that would be considered morally supererogatory because you're endangering your own life to save the life of another. Now let's get to the steps then that we could take in order to make moral decisions. Now let's be clear. Step one, you need to identify and choose an ethical theory. Before we even get down to making the decision itself, you have to identify and choose your ethical theory. And there's many to choose from. We talked about them. Moral relativism, cultural relativism, situation ethics, and behaviorism. Personally, as a biblicist, there is only one option. 
That is moral absolutism. See, as a biblicist, we believe that the Bible is the sole authority for all of faith and practice. Therefore, we're moral absolutist. And as a moral absolutist, we're non-consequentialist. In other words, the decision that we're going to make on whatever the moral issue may be is not going to be made based on what may or may not happen or the consequence. Step one, identify and choose an ethical theory. Step two, we need to gather all the available information and options on the situation. We need to gather all the available information and options on the situation. Listen, we need to do due diligence and gather all the facts available to us regarding a given situation, whether it's statistics, historical data, facts, figures, whatever. Having that factual information available to us enables us to determine what the issue really may be about or not be about. See, if the facts of the supposed issue are not known or understood, then we're going to have a difficult time finding and applying the right moral precept or principle. Step one, identify and choose an ethical theory. Step two, gather all the available information and options on the situation. Step three, look for a moral precept or principle that covers the situation. Now, that may be directly or indirectly. Again, step three, look for a moral precept or principle that covers the situation. Now, what if the moral rule could be applied in more than one way? For example, a pregnant woman is diagnosed with uterine cancer. Now, the moral precept says, do not murder. In other words, do not take an innocent life. If chemotherapy is not started immediately, the baby will live, but the mother will die. If chemotherapy is started immediately, the mother will live, but the baby will die. See, the moral duty is not to take either life because both lives are innocent. Would the mother be guilty of murder if she chooses to do chemotherapy knowing the child would die? No. She cannot be held morally accountable for doing what she could not fail to do. She had no freedom of action in that situation. Would the mother be guilty of murder if she sacrificed her life for the life of her child? No. Again, she cannot be held morally accountable for failing to do what she could not do. And in that case, if she sacrificed herself for her child, it would be an act of moral superrogation. Step three, look for moral precepts or principles that cover the situation. Now, some of those may simply be, you go into the store, you want something, should you take it or should you pay for it? Well, you should pay for it. Why? Because the law says, thou shalt not steal. Okay? So again, oftentimes there's going to be clear precepts and principles to apply, but there will be times when we run into those morally ambiguous areas. And in those situations, that's what we have to then determine Am I morally obligated? Is it morally permissible? Or would this be an act of moral superrogation? Again, let's remember, freedom of action is key. You cannot be held morally accountable for doing what you cannot fail to do, nor can you be held morally accountable for failing to do what you could not do. Now, step four. If two rules apply but conflict with one another, 
then we have to determine which rule has the greater priority. Again, if two rules apply but conflict with one another, we have to decide which rule has the greater priority. For example, a bank teller is robbed at gunpoint. The teller makes a moral decision. However, in this situation, there is more than one moral rule that could apply. One, one, one moral rule says, do not steal. Another moral rule says, do not murder. See, if the teller gives the money to the thief, ultimately they're helping him steal. If the teller refuses to give the money, the teller risks being murdered or putting others at risk of being murdered. See, the teller is now in what is referred to as a moral dilemma. He has to choose which rule has the greater priority. In this case, do not murder has the higher priority. Would the teller be guilty of theft? No. Why? He cannot act freely. Remember, an individual cannot be morally responsible for failing to do what he cannot do. So step four, if two rules apply but conflict with one another, decide which rule has the greater priority. Step five, if after consulting all relevant precepts and principles, and either the rules conflict or it's difficult to decide which one has priority, then the only option that we can do is to consult the consequence. Again, consideration of consequences for a moral absolutist is the last option. And step five should only be considered if the first four steps fail to produce an answer. And friends, most decisions, the majority of decisions that we will be faced to make will never come down to step five. To be honest, friends, there is so much more to say, and we will probably say more in further episodes of Ask the Pastor. And we'll certainly, as we answer questions of theology and ethics, we'll certainly be applying these five steps to answer those questions. But I would like to say that by following these five steps, I believe that we can alleviate much of the angst and difficulties we will face when we're confronted with issues of morality. Let's be honest, at some point, we are all going to be faced with a difficult moral choice. And it's far better to be prepared before the issue arises so that we know how to make the choice which honors God. This has been an episode of Ask the Pastor. To listen to previous episodes, go to www.trinitybiblechurchglassboro.com forward slash Ask the Pastor. Thanks for listening.